Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is March 10th, 2007, and this week we have for you the first installment in a marathon session with esoteric pundit Mac Tonys. In this portion of the interview, we're going to be talking about Mac's book, After the Martian Apocalypse, which is all about the mysterious and devious Mars anomalies. You know what I'm talking about. The face on Mars, Sidonia, and all the other assorted strange things found on the Red Planet. We're going to dig into all that stuff with Mac Tonys. We're going to hear about NASA and how they fit into this whole equation of Mars anomalies. And we're going to smash the fourth wall and talk about the Mars anomaly research community how it got started, how it evolved, all that great stuff. Plus, of course, tons and tons more here with Mac Tonys. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Mac Tonys, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Mac Tonys is an author-slash-essayist whose futuristic fiction and speculative essays have appeared in many print and online publications. He is the author of Illuminated Black, a collection of science fiction short stories, and After the Martian Apocalypse. Mac maintains Post-Human Blues, a widely read blog devoted to emerging technologies and paranormal phenomena, and is a member of the Society for Planetary SETI Research. He lives in Kansas City, Missouri, where he writes, reads, and surfs the net. He is currently at work on a new book about the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. His blog is www.posthumanblues.blogspot.com, and his formal website is mactonies.com. M-A-C-T-O-N-N-I-E-S dot com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 20th, 2007. Mac Tonys on Been All of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. 2006 was sort of the year Mac Tonys became a meme in and of himself. It was really a breakout year. A lot of people were talking about Mac Tonys. We finally got him here on Been All of America Audio. Mac is a prolific blogger, and uh, you can find more information on him, and he posts just voraciously at posthumanblues.blogspot.com, and he's the author of After the Martian Apocalypse. Welcome to the show, Mac. Thank you. It is a pleasure. Let's get a little bit of the bio and the background and, you know, sort of tell everybody who is Mac Tonys and uh, what you're all about and how you sort of gravitated toward the esoteric field. Hmm. Well, in a nutshell, I suppose I, I've, I've always been extremely interested in the paranormal, read a lot about it, wrote a lot about it, but before the Internet, there was really no way to uh, communicate some of my, some of my uh, thinking on, on issues like this. Mm-hmm. And I kind of discovered the Internet, or the web, rather, when it emerged in the mid-1990s, and I've been uh, messing around with my website and stuff pretty much since then. And... Uh, the f- first thing that really people started reading on a recurring basis was my Mars website, yeah. the Sidonian Imperative, which is what the Mars book ultimately was based on. And that was just a lots of, it was kind of a blog in its own right before blog be- blogs became popular. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a fancy blog, just kind of an j- online journal of just different discoveries and stuff and just, just musings on different discoveries and different landforms and different photographs and and it kind of got into some of the uh, controversy uh, as far as as far as different personalities in the field are concerned. You know, some yeah. of the some of the more far-fetched ideas being thrown around, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of fun. And I kept it up for a long time, and it's still not 
uh, officially defunct. It's just kind of gone into standby until until new pictures are taken that can confirm or or, or uh, not confirm some of the, some of the uh, theories and hunches that I developed during the during the period I was working on the site. So it's it's still there and it's still uh, kind of a big part of my website. It gets probably more visitors than the other parts combined. Uh, I guess I'm kind of hard to classify because I I'm, I'm really big on on fiction and um, other aspects of the paranormal, not just not just Mars. I, I found that I found that the Mars anomaly community is very insulated in that it seems very very concentrated on on the Martian landscape and, and finding new enigmas and, and taking NASA to task for dealing with uh, various subjects in a disingenuous manner. Mm -hmm. But uh, I. I've kind of I've kind of widened my scope from that. Uh, it, it's that fascinates me, and it continues to fascinate me. But um, I, I think it's part of a much bigger picture, a much bigger intellectual picture. And uh, I guess I guess if anything makes me unique, it's that I, I I just never felt really the need to be to be pigeonholed. You know, not yeah. I don't think it's a good decision, and I, and it doesn't come naturally to me. Let's dig right into after the Martian apocalypse. For starters, let's clear up this, this book issue situation because uh, when I talked to you recently, I was trying to get a hold of the book and I can't get a hold of the book. And, and uh, as, with your explosion in popularity in the last year, it seems like there's even more interest now in picking up a copy of the book. So what's going on with after the Martian apocalypse? Yeah, this appears to be one of those problems with conventional uh, publishing. Uh, you print up a, a, a run and it's very inflexible because they're out there and then they're gone and uh, it's very hard to get, a, get it back on the shelves after that. Um, Simon & Schuster is able to say that it is still in print because you can still buy electronic copies and uh, you can buy all kinds of different formats. If you go to simonsays.com and enter in the name of the book or, or my name, you'll get your choice of download. You can get a PDF. You can get uh, all kinds of mobile different formats like that. So the book is still technically out there, and you can read pre preview chapters apparently on on Google Books. Yep. But it's very hard to find a print copy now. It's kind of become this rare book. Like, and it happened really fast. Yeah. So I, I'm forced to assume that someone was at least buying it, which is heartening. Um, I'll wait and see. Get some numbers on that. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if I'm in, if I'm making royalties or what. But uh, but yeah, the book's only it's uh, uh, came out two and a half years ago, so it's not that old. What sort of drove your interest in Mars in general? Uh, as you said, it's sort of a, a little niche within the esoteric realm. So uh, what was it about? about Mars that, that piqued your interest and made it, made it part of what your focus was? Well, I've always been interested in it, which is a total cliche, but there you go. But um, <laughs> uh, I was on a mailing list back in, it would have been well, late, mid-late 90s, and uh, I just mentioned I was on, it was a technology-oriented mailing list, yeah. and I mentioned something about another coming opportunity to re-image the face on Mars. You know, this, this is good, we should do this. Mm -hmm. You know, let's pay attention. And the reaction was just just complete scorn and, and, and unreasoning and hatred, basically. Like, how dare you even suggest this? You're, you're a believer. You're a crackpot. You're, you know, just yeah. it's like, what the heck? And I realized there was this, for the first time, I mean, I already knew, but for the first time, really slammed home how divisive this issue was. Yeah. You know, you're either on this side or you're on this side. And uh, that... That really angered me, and I, I started writing about the issue of, uh, relating to the schism between this believer-debunker uh, dichotomy, which I believe is complete, completely bogus. And uh, that's kind of what started this, this, this Idonian imperative yeah. formally—that that that, that uh, dissatisfaction with the with this 
totally artificially inflated schism between these two uh, perceived polarities. <laughs> so that's that's anger started this Sidonian imperative. There you go. And now, for people who haven't checked out after the Martian apocalypse and can't get a hold of it because of all these issues, just give sort of a thumbnail scope of what what it's about and um, and and in general. I guess uh, from what I can gather, it's a case for researching Mars and Mars yeah, only. The book doesn't draw any, any hard and fast conclusions. It's lots of speculation based on observable data. And I justify it simply by the fact that this is all testable by going to Mars properly equipped <laughs> and looking at the surface. Uh, I've, I, uh, take, I take NASA to task for its ostensible search for life on Mars, which it, it's not really doing. It's looking for interesting geology. And while there's nothing wrong with that, it's not a search for life. We don't have any experiments on the Martian surface right now that are, that are, that are equipped to actually search the soil for, for life forms, let alone, let alone uh, scan the landscape for possible archaeological sites. If NASA were truly interested in, in looking for such things, it would have archaeologists on the team you know, on the on, on JPL's team. Instead, we don't see that. We see lots of people, um, lots of geologists, well-intentioned geologists, mm -hmm. with no interest in such things. And I think that's a tragedy, and I think the public is being uh, led astray by these constant mantric uh, references to the search for life. You know, that's used to justify the budget for craft like the Mars Exploration Rovers and, and others. But that's not what we're seeing right now, and we need to break out of this cycle. So the book is um, just a rundown of various enigmas on the surface of Mars. And again, I don't draw any conclusions, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually a cautious optimist that some of these features will turn out to be uh, more than, than mere piles of rock. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of brings me to my first, like, real big question here is that is uh, the, the face is sort of the, the foundation of all Mars enigmas, really. What's your stance on the face, just in general? The face is an incredibly interesting landform, uh, um, which, may, of course, may be more than a landform. Even if it is just geology, it is not merely a hill, as you often hear skeptics say, uh, yeah. or so-called skeptics. It's a, a very unusual formation in, any, in many respects. It has a very strong non-fractal signature, for one thing, which would indicate that it might uh, owe its existence to something other than blind natural processes. Um, never, whatever the face is, it's not the only thing on Mars. I think lots yeah. of debunkers have rallied around the point where, oh, the face doesn't only look that face-like when you look at it up close. And indeed, it's got lots of degradation and lots of, uh, and lots of abrasion. But that does not mean that it's not a face. If you look at lots of archaeological sites right here on Earth, we didn't even know they were artificial until very recently uh, with the advent of um, um, remote sensing technology. Because they're so, they're so old, they've begun to recede into the environment, recede into the landscape. Yeah. And with many of the objects on Mars, and again, it's not just the face, it's lots of other things, curiously enough, in the vicinity of the face, in the Cydonia region, uh, we find things that look like um, they were once much more pronounced than they are now, but they're beginning to um, be consumed by the landscape to the point where they look tantalizingly like they might be natural features. But we're at this point now where we can we can make that determination. But I'm just I'm just not sure that we're collectively intellectually capable of handling that idea. We're we're addicted to this. Either throw it out. It's it's. It's 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 the will to believe. It's it's the predisposition to see faces and whatnot. And on the other hand, you've got 
got people who see every little pixel and see some conspiracy in this. So I, I don't think that's a healthy situation. Yeah. And then uh, one of the strange aspects about the face is that it, it really, uh, in the in the spectrum of esoteric um, topics, really, the face on Mars is sort of on the lower end of the ladder. Why do you think uh, the face has gotten that sort of reputation? It's like below UFOs, yeah. but it's above moon hoax. Do you <laughs> exactly. know what I mean? I'm trying to like yeah, put it in a spectrum. Right. It's got the, it's in a limbo state. It really is. And I think I think a lot of that uh, is uh, attributable to, to NASA's attempted scotching of the issue back in 1998. Yeah. That was when the Mars... Um, Global Surveyor went into orbit and started taking pictures, and it took this incredibly bad shot uh, from an angle through a haze in the atmosphere. And NASA presented it in the extremely substandard format. They used a high-pass filter, which anyone with a Photoshop manual can probably look this up and see that the purpose of using a high-pass filter is to suppress detail. And uh, it, it seems pretty obvious that this was used intentionally. Um, of course, advocates of the, of the NASA cover-up hypothesis will, will immediately state that you know they know the face is real and they're trying to they're trying to hoodwink the public. I do not personally believe that. I think that uh, I think that while the use of the high-pass filter was intentional, I, I think it was probably done out of a sense of you know we know this is nothing, so you know let's just hasten the process a little bit for the good of, for the good of everyone. Yeah. For everyone's intellectual well-being, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's and and I think a lot of that that pretty much scotched the issue in the public mind for a lot of people. However, there are many qualified people uh, in the scientific community who are not fooled by that and uh, are continuing to to look at to look at this issue objectively. You sort of poo-poo uh, the idea of conspiracy with regards to the face and NASA. Um, so what what do you subscribe that sort of um, Antagonistic relationship between NASA and and face research. I've seen an atmosphere of, of of kind of cultivated bureaucratic incompetence. That and the combination of it can't be, therefore it isn't. Mm-hmm. We're seeing kind of like the equivalent of of, of Menzel and, and UFO lore attributed to uh, features on Mars as opposed to objects in our own skies. It's very it's very similar, and it shares very deep roots with the. Uh, with the schism, the belief schism in the UFO community, and I think both sides could probably learn from the other. Yeah, yeah. So you don't attribute it to like a uh, a shadowy conspiracy. It's more just that uh, it's tempting to speculate about shadowy conspiracies, and it's often very fun to do so. Uh, I'm not aware of any hard and fast evidence that would allude to a to a conspiracy. That's not to say there isn't one. That's 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 the fun of coming up with with conspiracy theories. Yeah. Is that you can't. You don't have to prove it. It's a, it's, a, it's a theory, and you can make it sound as plausible as you're as you're capable of. But that doesn't make it that doesn't make it real. And uh, they're kind of sexy, you know. Uh, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. It's fun to have a good conspiracy theory. And uh, I'm agnostic on the issue. I'm not saying there isn't. But I'm not saying there isn't a shadowy faction within the within the um, within the uh, the scientific community, at least on the government end of it. Uh, that's aware of the of the possibility of detecting extraterrestrial artifacts and the repercussions that that might entail if they're discovered and and publicized. There very well could be. Um, it's a good question, and I play with that in the book a little bit. But it's it's a much more nuanced and subtle uh, controversy than it's typically made out to be on your typical online uh, online source. Can you extrapolate on that uh, last statement a little bit. What do you mean uh, that it's more subtle? 
Well, I, I, uh, I don't think it's a case of the typical thing you're asked to believe when you when you read lots of uh, lots of screeds online is that uh, NASA has known for a long time that the face and, and accompanying objects are artificial beyond reasonable doubt, and uh, and they've taken off they've like the Mars Observer, which was the first spacecraft to have had the capability of resolving these features on the surface with with pretty good clarity. It went offline shortly before it went into orbit around Mars. And uh, one a big theory is that this was intentionally taken offline so that NASA could uh, take pictures in secret and uh, and not show the public. Yeah. And I don't think that really holds up. Uh, I, th I think we're I think again we're dealing with an issue of it can't be there for it isn't. And to me that makes more sense than the uh, the, and the notion that NASA already knew. For if if NASA already knew, they'd have to have a way of knowing. Mm -hmm. There would have to be some aspect to our space program that we could point to and say, okay, this is when they discovered it. Instead, we don't see anything like that. Uh, instead, we're asked to believe all kinds of different uh, occult scenarios that just, just don't really seem to hold water. Yeah. The way you look at it kind of does stand to reason in a way, because if, if NASA was interested in covering up the face in the first place, they probably never, they were the ones who released the picture right, from the get-go. Right. It's so, very elliptical, yeah. yet they released the picture. Why, you know, why on earth do that at all? And, yeah. don't, and don't tell me it was done as a, as a psychological test, you know, to <laughs> test the public's readiness to accept artifacts on Mars. That doesn't make any sense either. So yeah, it's all it's all a very dis dissatisfying issue when you look at it up close. and. Uh, it's an issue where everyone has to be right, and uh, I think what made me uh, somewhat, at least somewhat controversial was the fact that I wasn't, I didn't want to perpetuate this, this particular controversy because there were other people already, that already beat me there, and they're, have, they're having their fun doing that, and, and uh, I just didn't see the need to participate in that. Cause yeah. I, yeah. And then you say the face isn't the uh, isn't the only uh, evidence, obviously, for for a uh, previous civilization on Mars and artifacts and all that stuff. What, what would you say are some of the other evidence or the better aspects and stuff that people should look at and maybe bypass the whole face issue? Because yeah, the face right. has become sort of like the Roswell of Mars artifact research, where it's um, just oversaturated. Right. Well, you, got, you, have, you have a degree of bisymmetry in, in the Cydonia region with a number of landforms, and even if the face the, the framing mesa itself is interesting uh, because it's so bilaterally symmetric. Even if it didn't have any facial features at all, and I'm aware that some people claim they don't see the facial features. Nevertheless, I think they're pretty clear once you look at the originals and look at the, the original Viking images taken in the 1970s, and look at the look at the newer pictures. Um, uh, even if the facial features were non-existent, you would still see a high degree of bilateral symmetry. And while nature is not incapable of producing such forms, it is un it's rather unlikely uh, compared to the, the compared to the probability of seeing much more rounded amorphic features and to be sure you've got lots of features in Cydonia that look nothing but natural but at the same time you have features like the, the DNM pyramid uh, yes a very big five-sided pyramid that is quite impressive actually and uh, it looks it looks quite um, quite symmetrical and quite artificial to me and a number of other people. And uh, there are also other features in, in, the, in the vicinity that also kind of smack of smack of something other than geological processes. And one of those is the um, uh, the main city pyramid, uh, which is due east of the face. 
excuse me, west of the face. And it is, like the DNM, it is also five-sided. And that kind of suggests that maybe if these things were intelligently constructed, they were they were built to um, conform to a certain motif on the on the surface. And uh, there's and there are a number of small features, and it's kind of a subtle issue because it's hard to you know, make a poster out of it and just point to people how, yeah. how strange it is. But there are these bright mounds. And on the Viking images, they were just simply bright spots on the Martian surface that, yeah. we, that uh, certain scientists found interesting. And uh, when it, it turns out that they form a very, very non-random, at least seemingly non-random, a mathematical signature on the, on the Martian surface, very redundant. And... Uh, when you run these, when, when you calculate and then generate random spots on the surface using the computer and try to find the likelihood of these things occurring naturally, it's it's like I think it's literally like millions or billions to one. It's just oh, wow. uh, the, the gulf is incredible. And, this, and again, this is a kind of a subtle issue because these are just bright dots and many many uh, predictions about what we might see we kind of kind of flew around before we got the high resolution images and it turns out that a lot of these bright dot features really are quite interesting as morphologies and not just uh, points on the surface uh, there are some that look very much like uh, constructions and uh, you know we're not going to know until until we go there or get much much better images and yeah. uh, the possibility of, of much better images is within our grasp nevertheless I'm kind of I kind of subscribe to the school of thought that we're not going to know for sure until we actually go there yeah. and start taking it seriously and start bringing archaeological tools to our arsenal instead of just looking for uh, the past presence of water. As, ex as exciting as that is, it's not the it's not the last question we should be asking ourselves. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of talk over the summer about the ESA pictures of the face, um, and it was sort of like another blow to the face theory from uh, the, the general space community. What oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ESA took, uh, they took actually really good pictures of the face, but that's not what they really showed the public. They showed yeah. the, the public computer-generated perspective shots. And uh, two of them are perfectly valid, or at least appear to be based on existing data. I mean, I've been I've been looking at these pictures in, in detail for, you know, 10 years. Yeah. And uh, from, you know, Mathematical predictions and actual photographs, and and the ones that the ESA produced are just simply uh, the one that made the the most uh, the most uh, waves in, in the pool uh, yeah. was this one image showing this uh, synthetic perspective image of the face from the ground, and you see this horn-like steeple protuberance sticking out of mm -hmm. between the eyes, and this feature simply doesn't exist. It's just not there. It was uh, evidently some sort of uh, manipulation, and uh, it, from from consulting with some with some actual imaging scientists, it appears that this is the product of uh, a vertical elongation of the face, and uh, it's 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 not an actual feature. Whether it was placed there deliberately, kind of like how NASA uh, introduced the high pass filter to the original so-called cat box image of the face in '98, or whether it's simply the result of bad computer work, I don't know. But it's not there, and the fact that it detracts from the face-like face-like resemblance of the face really does have uh, is is uh, rather disappointing. Uh, I would have expected more from the ESA, which has generally been a little more uh, accepting and a little more open of the possibility of life. In fact, they had landed the Beagle 2 lander, which which crashed, mm -hmm. and that was to be the first 
supposed to have been the first uh, craft on the Martian surface to actually be equipped to test for life forms in the, in the soil since the Viking landers in the 1970s. And uh, that was that was a real big blow because I think we probably would have found it. In the book, you are... Uh you sort of say that the the Mars anomaly community exploded uh, in 1998 with the with the cat box image. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sort of. Can you talk a little bit about uh, just the Mars anomaly community in general, leading up to that explosion and then since? Uh, because, like you said, it's sort of a niche group. It's apart from uh, the UFO field. A lot of them don't really want to be even associated with UFOs, and mm-hmm. so uh, it's hard to get a real grasp on the evolution of that. And vice versa, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, well, I think it was like it's like a kettle boiling. You know, we had mm-hmm. the, we had these very intriguing. Uh, Photos from, 19, from the 1970s showing some very interesting features on Mars, and uh, those were circulated. And, and you know, pretty much the speculation—you can only speculate so much before yeah. you start getting just red in the face. And when we finally get these new pictures in from the Mars um, Global Surveyor as it's going into its it, it's uh, going into its orbit around Mars, it took those pictures very early in, in its mission. And it came kind of as kind of a shock wave, and uh, and that, it co- coincided very fortuitously with the beginning of the, the World Wide Web, as we mm-hmm. know it. Yeah. And the websites that went up around this thing are just were just amazing. I mean, you you could you could just wade through these things for days with these uh, analyses of of the face. And uh, some people were claiming that NASA had dropped nuclear weapons. I'm not making this up. They actually claimed that they tried to destroy the face uh, to oh, account wow. for its the fact that it didn't look quite like the face that we all knew and loved from the 1970s. The people's people making that claim had no appreciation for the fact that if you look at something in much greater resolution, you're going to see lots more detail on the surface. Yeah. Uh, and if we're looking at a, an artificial sculpture, then it, it stands to reason that it's going to look it's going to look beat up and abraded. You know, we're not. No one's suggesting that this is an inhabited structure or some sort of uh, oracle that's you know, maintained on a regular basis, you know, a museum piece. Yeah. This is old. You know, if we're looking at artificial constructions, or they're likely uh, many, many thousands of years old, possibly predating humankind as we know it. And uh, so... Yeah, he had all these all these sentiments like that that just boiled up and reached a peak in 1998, and and uh, it was compounded uh, compounded by the fact that uh, Mainland Space, Space Science Systems, the, the subcontractor for NASA in charge of the photos, uh, had agreed to release everything not only as they came in images uh, images of. Uh, of Cydonia features that, yeah. that researchers were interested in. Not only had they agreed to release them uh, in real time, essentially they had uh, they had uh, violated their their promise to um, announce them beforehand. Mm-hmm. Imag- imaging opportunities, and in some cases they were sitting on images for like six months before oh, wow. releasing them. And, uh, you know, while I don't think there's any evidence that anything's been doctored or anything like that, this was obviously uh, very heavy fuel for some of your diehard conspiracy theorists. And uh, and uh, it kind of polarized the debate even more. And uh, it became the, the landscape, the Mars anomaly landscape, became extremely cynical. And not without some reason, but uh, it became uh, predictable in a way that was not very... Uh, not very stimulating to me. I, because to me this, the issue was still, what are these landforms? And yeah. to, to too many people, it was okay. They're artificial. Uh, NASA knows it. Um, uh, let's 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 move on. Let's let's get let's get the truth. So you, you started having you started having uh, little online movements that were very reminiscent of like uh, the Disclosure Project. Yeah. 
and uh, that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Because you're like more open-minded and you seem to be seeing it. Well, I'm, I'm agnostic. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a cautious advocate of, of artificiality. I think that we will ultimately discover that there are alien artifacts on Mars, and I think that's going to have great bearing on who we think we are as a species. And uh, it's, it's uncomfortable to see such an interesting prospect sullied by this need to believe. Yeah, yeah. What's happened really since the 98 explosion? Would you say that the Mars anomaly communities uh, petered out or the wells kind of running dry or just sort of uh, ebbs and flows with uh, whatever is going on with the mainstream sciences work Well, it on continued Mars. to grow after 1998 because more and more images were taken. And yeah. It became almost kind of like this uh, celebratory atmosphere. Let's go, you know, more images, all right, you know, let's, let's spend the next few months just, you know, going over them with a fine-tooth comb. And that was kind of exciting and fun. And that was that was uh, part of the uh, raison d'etre of the of the Sidonian imperative, it was fun to get these images and take a close look and, you know, ask, you know, what are we seeing here? Is it, could this possibly be artificial or are we looking at weird geology mm -hmm. or some combination of both? And uh, that continued for a while. And I think, I think now we've reached the point where it's kind of just going with the flow. Um, the Mars Global Severe spacecraft just recently went offline. Uh, it's not it's not returning images anymore. However, we have an even better spacecraft in orbit, uh, equipped to take images, to take pictures of the surface, and uh, it's called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, yeah. and it has near spy camera resolution. It's oh, got wow. like 15, uh, 15 meters per excuse me, fifteen centimeters per pixel. Oh wow! Which is really good. Yeah, we can look at the individual boulders with this thing, and we already have. It's 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 already distinguished the Pathfinder mission ensemble on the surface, and you know those those weren't big vehicles by any means. Those are those rather small. So uh, yeah, we have a we have a platform in orbit right now that could really help us resolve some important questions at the heart of the debate, um, and hopefully that will hopefully that will have a revitalizing effect on the the scientific aspect of of the online of the online anomaly movement, and kind of drag it out of the uh, political mire. Uh, nevertheless, I don't think politics are going to be going away anytime soon because as long as we have to as long as we have to deal with the JPL as the as the mediator between these images and the public, it's going to present a problem because they are they are openly hostile to the possibilities that Mars might have uh, uh, not not only. Um, life, but let alone, you know, <laughs> giant megalithic architecture. So this is going to be kind of a problem, and it's going to be pretty interesting, I think. And it's possibly going to breathe some more life into it. And I'm still waiting uh, for uh, images that might confirm some of the some of the some of the more subtle artificial-looking features noted in the last volley of of Mars Global Surveyor photos, such as. Uh, um, an eye on the face. There's a very, there's a very obvious uh, looking eye on one half of the face on Mars that looks very humanoid. Yes, yeah. it's, it's almond shaped. It has a nice little elliptical basin and a and a pupil like structure in the middle. And uh, and this wasn't even visible in the old Viking photos. So the the odds of having a secondary feature confirm. Um, the impression of a, of a of an anthropomorphic likeness on the Martian surface is, is highly unlikely if this is a natural formation. So I'm very interested in that, among other features. One aspect that you talk about in the book uh, on the Mars anomaly community, and it's a sort of a sub, even more of a sub aspect of, of, of Mars anomaly, and that's these uh, sort of Martian Nazca lines, if you will. Um, you know what I'm talking about here? Mm, yeah. Can you yeah. talk a little bit, because uh, they don't get much press. Uh, 
Half In many sovereign. cases, they don't deserve very much press because yeah, they're they pretty. They're pretty ink blot, you know. Yeah. They kind of fall into that category. But again, they present an interesting epistemological challenge to uh, debunkers because we have. And I'm talking about like profile features, like there's one called Nefertiti, which looks a lot like Nefertiti, yeah. except it's seen in profile, you know. And uh, and there are lots of those, like that. people people see these. Um, um, Profile visages of human faces and other and other objects, animals, and, and and so forth, on Mars, and and most of the time these are very very selective, and they don't impress me at all. But nevertheless, they kind of present an interesting challenge to how we how we know what we know, and that's kind of where my where my interest lies regarding these, uh, because we have features on Earth that built by built by uh, like the Peruvians with the Nazca lines and uh, other Indian cultures in, in North America. Uh, that were built in profile and uh, to resemble actual likenesses, yep. animal likenesses, and so forth. And, and they look and they look, you know, like kind of abstract, but nevertheless, they are artificial. Mm -hmm. So if you see a profile that looks something like a human face on Mars, it's much easier to it's much easier to get a profile than a frontal than a frontal view. Like the old man of the mountain is cited as an example by debunkers. Yeah, and. Uh, and there are other there are other examples all over the world, so uh, there's less information involved with features like this that uh, and and that enables the imagination to kind of fill in the blanks, um, but that doesn't necessarily preclude the possibility that they might be real. So perhaps we shouldn't discount them immediately. At the very least, maybe we should kind of study the the, the mechanics of perception involved when we're looking at these things and and apply that and deal with it usefully instead of using it as just instant fodder for debunking arguments, which are already pretty pretty lame anyway. Yeah. Because the fact is, if we're dealing with an alien species on Mars, then, then who knows what they were up to, and and for that matter, who knows what technological level they they were they were at. We don't know. We don't know if you're dealing with a high tech civilization, some sort of some sort of planet hopping civilization uh, that passed through our solar system long ago, or a civilization that evolved on Mars and had the the technological abilities of, associated with like a Bronze Age or Egyptian yeah. culture. We really we, there are lots of unanswered questions, and I think some of our stubborn refusal to deal with uh, the Martian thing was kind of stems from our own our own grudging ignorance of of. Of, of when Mars was able to support life, how little we know about the planet itself, you know, to say nothing of, of, of the role of intelligence. All right, now I should probably ask you about uh, the sort of 400-pound gorilla in the room on, on when you're discussing Mars and the face and all that good stuff, and you know where I'm going to say now. I think so. And that's uh, that's Richard C. Hoagland. He's, he's uh, sort of the black hole of uh, Martian face research. 400 pounds. I, I, it's just more like at least 1,000 pounds. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, well, if I don't mention him, then, then you know, we're kind of skirting the issue. So let's talk about Richard C. Hoagland uh, as much as you want to say without trying to get me sued or anything. <laughs> um, no, Richard Oakland, is I, I, his Monuments of Mars is, is a wonderful book. It's a wonderful speculative book, and it's it's quite informative. And it's, it has lots of it incorporates lots of early early research, and lots of uh, interesting anecdotes about some of the people originally involved with the inquiry. And uh, I, I think really very highly of Richard some of Richard Hoagland's work. I don't think very highly of some other of, of Richard Hoagland's work. Yeah, his more recent output to me uh, is is not very impressive. And uh, it seems to me that the combination of the of discovering the internet 
and kind of I was referred to the kind of waiting interim period between the between the 1976 images and the and the new uh, Mars Global Surveyor images. Uh, I think that kind of that kind of cabin fever while waiting for some new inputs from some new data from Mars yeah. uh, didn't really bode well for his 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 uh, sense of scientific caution. Uh, we've got lots of lots of rather elaborate uh, numerical uh, analyses of the Martian surface that are you know the numbers don't don't work because we don't have we don't have resolution that that accommodates that kind of tolerance. Yeah. He's referring to features like uh, relating features to each other to a degree of accuracy that we're simply unable to do with with even some of the images we have now with with, yeah. good, with the good probes, uh, let alone the Viking images. And uh, I think he had already kind of cemented his own position on what these what these features entailed, and went about kind of forcing a lot of these a lot of these discoveries into uh, into what he already knew subjectively was the case. And he's an immensely popular figure. He's on late night radio all the time. Yeah. He's uh, he's entertaining. He's articulate. He seems like a, a pretty nice guy. And uh, But that doesn't mean that I agree, agree with, with what he's saying. And he seems to fulfill the role of an entertainer more than he does as a scientific uh, personality. I mean, I think he, he presents himself as kind of like the Carl Sagan of Cydonia. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I'm not exactly sold on that. I mean, when I use the inter term entertainer, I use it pretty. I mean that in a good sense. I'm mm -hmm. being kind of, you know, charitable. I'm not trying to be condescending. And I think he's well aware that he's that he's an entertaining figure and kind of goes for that. But uh, I'm just I'm just very skeptical of of, of Hoagland and uh, don't think as highly of his of his later work. Uh, as I do as, of his earlier work, and you know that's that's basically the extent of it. It's nothing personal. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just, you know, I just just don't think his his new stuff is as good as his old stuff. There you go. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to ask. That's how that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, just touching on this anomaly community uh, in and of itself, um, as you said, it's sort of tightly knit, and you didn't want to get uh, pigeonholed into it. Um, but what was the reaction of the community when you started putting your work out there? Because uh, there's a lot of talk uh, when I talk about ufology with people about how there's sort of um, that it's sort of a closed society and you sort of got to work your way in and everything. And um, I assume it was sort of the same way with you in the Mars Anomaly community. So uh, maybe just talk about your integration into that community and, and what that was like. Yeah, initially there was some a combination of resentment and uh, some people really, really liked where he's coming from. It's like, okay, this guy, you know, he's he's not claiming all the all the answers, and this was very refreshing to lots yeah. of readers to 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 be able to look at some images and and think about them without being told what they're seeing, you know, and uh, and the and told all about the attending NASA cover-ups and everything. Yeah. So there was there was some uh, some appreciation there, but there was also some resentment. Like you know, well, hey, Hoagland's the you know he's the expert here. Who's this guy? You know, what's yeah. well, who cares what well, you have to say? You're you know you're a, you're a Hoagland wannabe. You know that that was leveled at me by a few people oh, wow. associated with Hoagland, and uh, it's, it's it's silly because it's obviously that I'm not trying to be anything like Hoagland. But uh, but yeah, it was a mixed reaction. Overall, it was positive, and uh, and it, uh, the the fact that I was able to get a you know write a book kind of summarizing my my basic position on this on this whole inquiry was was very uh, gratifying. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, 
Yeah, it sounds like uh, that the Mars Anomaly community has the same amount of turf wars that you expect to have. Oh, yeah, it's nothing but turf wars. It's, it's every bit as ugly as the UFO community. But, but yeah, you're right. It's very insulated. It's very uh, often its own little own little uh, convention hall, and uh, what goes on there is, is isn't really noted by anyone else. Yeah. And to a degree, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, the very fact that you're you're hermetically sealing yourself in this little fan-like community uh, <laughs> is unhealthy for uh, other other elements of the spectrum. And you know, I just I just am unable to see these things in isolated boxes. Yeah. I I can't help but feel that there is a, a thread of commonality through all this, and uh, Mars is just a component of a much larger mystery. Yeah. And another fascinating aspect uh, that you talk about is, and this I really enjoyed because I really do like uh, people, on, and you definitely seem to do this with not just this work but the, uh, your later work that we're going to talk about, is that you take a really nice big picture perspective on these things. It's nice that you pull back from the from the uh, from the low level sort of arguments and take a really good big picture look at things. And one aspect of that that I noticed in uh, after the Martian apocalypse was face on Mars as meme. Because mm -hmm. um, that's just fascinating. Let's talk about that. No, I, the face on Mars is an you know an ideological product. Yeah. And it, I I compare it to the alien face meme. Uh, the, we all we all know, for example, now what what, what aliens look like. They're big and uh, big heads. Big bald heads with big insect-like eyes and little spindly, uh, spindly necks and, and slit mouths and nostrils, and that's thanks in large part to uh, not not entirely, but the, it really achieved a lot of momentum with the publication of Whitley Strieber's Communion yeah. in 1987. That image really resonated with a lot of people in a very interesting way, and. Uh, and then you had it minimalized even further by, there was a cartoonist, well, there still is, I don't know what he's doing right now, Bill Barker, who had this wonderful uh, comic strip called uh, Very Paranoid. It's kind of like a, if, if Franz Kafka did a, did a single panel comic strip, it would look a lot like this. <laughs> and it was called Schwa. And at one time it had a really good online presence, and I haven't. It's kind of it's it's laid low. Yeah. And I, it's hard to find right now. But anyway, it uh, he he kind of made it this very iconic alien emblem with the big eyes, you know, and he deleted the mouth, deleted the nose, and it just became the symbol, you know, and it just uh, it was a very portentous symbol. I mean, you saw it, and you knew what it meant. Oh, we're dealing with aliens. We're dealing with weird stuff. And uh, he just kind of made it iconic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the face on Mars is kind of. Uh, in the same realm as that ubiquitous alien head. It's a consumer archetype now, and uh, it's kind of emblematic of, of the unknown in a very in a very uh, specific sense. Yeah. Of you know, it kind of touches the touches the uh, uh, the viewer's mind in in, in a way that uh, nothing else really can. It's part of a visual vocabulary that's sprung up. And uh, the whole idea of the meme as an infectious idea is kind of relatively new science, and uh, it's it's it deals with the spread of information in a viral in a viral manner. Yeah. And the internet has totally has totally given this thing um, its own playing field yeah. in a way that even the print in the print media didn't have before that. We're able to see ideas traverse the globe in, in you know microseconds and spring up in weird new ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're seeing it almost a form of artificial life, and uh, you know, ideas don't necessarily fare well because they're accurate, although that sometimes helps. Um, but simply because people enjoy having them, people enjoy experiencing 
or savoring an idea, mm -hmm. no matter how unwieldy or inaccurate it might be, or how fragile it might prove to be. And uh, so, yeah, in, in one chapter and after the Martian apocalypse, I just kind of stand back and look at this whole uh, ideological landscape associated with space on Mars and uh, and aliens, in quotes, yeah, and and UFOs and and leaked documents and and uh, NASA cover-ups and all this stuff, and it becomes almost irrelevant if it's if it's fact or fiction at at a certain point, and it just becomes this. Uh, just as just, just a rippling, uh, seething mass of information. This is very interesting to take in from, from an aesthetic point of view, almost. And uh, so, yeah, that's an aspect of this whole Fortean uh, scene that eludes some people, I think. Not everyone, by any means, but, uh, you know, most people are, are, are still committed to this, I believe this, or, or I don't believe this, I, I think it's all, I think it's all crap, and uh, I think that I think that's an unproductive way of dealing with this new this new ecology of information that's been emerging and continues to grow every day. Almost as if whether it's right or wrong isn't really as important as the fact that it exists in and of itself. Exactly, it's a very it's very postmodern and very uh, and very uh, kind of kind of conceptual. You know, it's kind yeah. of like looking at concept art or something. Yeah. But it's but it's it's educational. You can learn from it. You can you can you can if you're willing to stand back and look at this thing from a healthy clinical distance and just appreciate it for the sheer absurdity of it. Yeah. It's actually it's actually quite a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think a lot of that uh, about the UFO phenomenon itself. And that. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, the all the politics and all the all the all the claims. And counterclaims, and uh, you know, at what point do you, you know, at some point you just kind of stop caring what's real on a certain level, not mm -hmm. not, not your yeah, main I level, know exactly but, what you mean. right? You just kind of take it all in, and and almost almost on a subconscious level, you appreciate what's going on, the ebb and flow of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you uh, do you tackle moon artifacts at all? Have you ever touched that realm of uh, that's that's you know sort of a offshoot of the Martian artifacts mm -hmm. community. There are weird. There are some weird features on the moon. I'm not an expert on them, uh, but there are enough strange features on the moon and, and repeated observations of lunar transient phenomena, for example, that that make me think that there could very well be some interesting um, features waiting to be discovered on the lunar surface. And that's neat because the moon is only three days away. Yeah. Whereas Mars is, you know, the better part of the year. And uh, it's very—it's a lot easier, obviously, to get to the moon than Mars. So, if there is something waiting for us on the on the moon, whether it be some sort of a monolith or something, or something much more, you know, trivial, you know, in, in a inter in, a, in an extraterrestrial context, you know, ruins of some sort, that's going to tell us a lot about who we think we are. And uh, so, I'm hopeful that it, that a, that a future moon probe, or maybe even something we have up there. Up there now will will you know show us evidence of this and it will get it in forthright manner and we'll be able to it'll hasten our breaking out of this of this shop worn skeptic believer dichotomy which you know I don't have any patience for yeah and then uh, sort of to close out this this Mars discussion uh, where do you see the Mars work going from NASA and you sort of alluded that you don't think we're going to really get to the bottom of the space Sidonia anomaly situation until we have men on Mars or archaeological work being done there uh, so where do you see this Mars work going from NASA in the future I can't help but feel that there must be some interest somewhere within the NASA 
chain of command, you know, someone somewhere is going to is going to uh, propose. You know, let's take a look at this at this feature. You know, let's go take a little a dig and take some ultrasound readings and see if there might be you know something to this. Yeah. Uh, that's assuming, of course, that we make it to Mars. And uh, right now, it looks like that's in the in the in the. Uh, in the itinerary, it looks like we will be going to Mars eventually, and I certainly hope so. Uh, probably can't get there fast enough for my for my own point of view, uh, but uh, but yeah, I think we're going to be going back to Mars and back to the Moon rather, and then on to Mars from there. And from then, it's probably only a matter of time until we have uh, the answer one way or another. Once yeah. we establish a presence on the planet and start sending uh, crews out to explore and uh, Take take specimens and and uh, you know flirt around with the idea of terraforming the planet and stuff like that. It, eventually, we're going to either stumble across something or we're going to make a directed attempt to uh, discern whether something once thought to be artificial is or is or isn't. So it's it's probably an unstoppable process at this point. Yeah. Uh, what's what what remains a variable is whether or not this is made uh, general is made public is made uh, is made. Uh, Accessible to the to the masses, and uh, you know that's when all the that's where all the cover up theories come in. Obviously, now do you think if if it turned out that the face was real, like uh, in in the sense that it was an artificial structure, that the government would let uh, the people know, or what what's your take on that whole thing? Well, it would depend on what the face represents. If it represents a Bronze Age technology or something, in other words, something not that not in advance of our own technology. Yeah. Oh yeah, maybe so. Uh, if if it's built by someone that was more advanced than we are, then we might see more of a more of a paranoid mentality uh, arise, because uh, because because digging into it would entail uh, possibly you know giving people information that we can't quote unquote can't handle you know yeah, yeah. At, our, at our stage of de development. But you know, that, and that's and that's an assumption made by lots of people that that the face is invariably made by you know extrasolar aliens that are that are godlike. And uh, from looking at the from looking at the features on Mars, my impression is that the, whoever made these things, assuming hypothetically that they were indeed made, <laughs> weren't godlike. They weren't they weren't um, infallible aliens. They were. Uh, they had they had very uh, very limited um, resources, and uh, that invites the notion that they might have been human in, in in some way that we're not that we don't really know that our that our uh, that our that our textbooks don't really give any uh, don't offer any <laughs> recourse. Yeah. In other words, we're kind of venturing into some uncharted waters with this. Mm -hmm. The, the stuff on Mars, as far as Sidonia, that that looks more like uh, something you'd see in ancient Egypt. Now. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that, yeah, and it, it's been noted before. You know, some people even go so far as to say, "Well, the ancient Egyptians must must have invented space flight and flown to Mars and built this stuff." And I don't think that for a minute. But, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, there's this eerie. Uh, the fact that we're able to look at this stuff and 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 associate with it and and make sense of it on a, on an aesthetic level. You know, the fact that the face is humanoid for crying out loud—that's that's not what we would necessarily expect from uh, visitors from some other solar system. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, it implies a terrestrial connection of some kind, and I think that's been—I think that's been the uh, the kiss of death for many researchers who are trying to prove this terrestrial connection and come up with some really ludicrous ideas. Uh, then again, who's to say what's ludicrous and what's not? It's a, you know, there are no maps for these territories.
Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking it would be a refreshing day when uh, they do land in Sidonia and get some answers. Uh, I hope, hopefully we'll be around when that happens. So I think we will be, yeah. It's, it's going to be refreshing for me whether the face is, 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 is rock or whether it's uh, an artifact. Yeah. I just it, I just want an answer. You know, I don't want to believe anything in particular, and some people refuse to to take me at face value when I say that, but uh, I really don't care. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it just in and of itself, it'll be fascinating, and, and, and I think uh, the reaction will be possibly even more fascinating. Yeah, so. I mean, Mar Mars is, has no shortage of, of, of discoveries in store for us. You know, we don't need uh, the face of Mars. Some people have argued about UFOs and stuff. It's like, you know, why can't people just be interested and, and fascinated by the universe on its own terms? You know, why do we need to populate, populate it with UFOs and stuff? Well, these people are, are in ignorant in the sense that they, they're not aware that the UFO phenomenon, for example, is, is quite real and seems to represent something physical and unknown. Um, but uh, the point they have is valid. Uh, the universe is, is rather strange, and, we, and if, if UFOs and the face on Mars and other enigmas like this didn't exist, uh, for me personally, there wouldn't be any real psychological advantage to inventing them. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio. Big thanks to Mac Tonys for coming on the show. He'll be back next week for part two of two. If you want to find out more about Mac Tonys, his blog is posthumanblues.blogspot.com, posthumanblues.blogspot.com, and his formal website is mactonies.com, M-A-C-T-O-N-N-I-E-S.com. Moving right along now, it's time for Banal of America Audio listener feedback, and this week's letter comes from a person billed only as Towner. Here's what Towner has to say. While interviewing your guests, you keep saying, yeah, 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 over and over. It drives me crazy. Why not just let the speaker get their point across in silence? This would make for a much better show. Stop the yeah, yeah, yeah after every sentence. Signed, Towner. Thank you very much for the feedback, Towner. I appreciate the constructive criticism. I have noticed over the course of the last season and a half that I have picked up some hosting foibles, some strange catchphrases, if you will, and definitely the yeah, yeah, yeah is one of them. When we tape the next batch of interviews, I will make it a point to refrain from using the yeah, 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 and hopefully it will be noticeable to those of you in the audience who have noticed it and find it cringeworthy. Thank you again for writing in, Towner. Stick with us, and hopefully you'll enjoy listening to the evolution of BOA Audio. If you would like to be a part of Been All of America Audio listener feedback, simply go to binallofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will put you on the page with the appropriate contact information. Or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods will put your correspondence on the road to being featured on Been All of America Audio listener feedback. Up next, it's time to thank the great binallofamerica.com staff. Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna, thank you so much for your help and support with the audio series and the website. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the fantastic columns from the BOA staff, you're only getting half the story. Compelling, esoteric reading material produced week in and week out from the fine folks at BanalofAmerica.com. Definitely check out their columns. You will not be disappointed. BanalofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, simply click the PayPal button at BanalofAmerica.com and make a donation. 
Every donation helps, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio on the air and available to our many listeners worldwide. Next week on the program, part two of two with Mac Tony's crypto-terrestrial hypothesis and esoterica in general. It is going to be almost double the length of this week's installment. It broke down in a strange sort of way. An hour on Mars, an hour on the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, and an hour on the world of esoterica in general. Instead of splitting that crypto-terrestrial hour in half, I opted to run two hours next week and one hour this week, so next week's will be an expanded edition with Mac Tony's. For starters, the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis has taken the esoteric world by storm and has been a major talking point throughout the last year at least. We're going to talk about how it all started, how Mac came up with this whole thing, and what the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis is. If you've only vaguely heard about it, but haven't really investigated it, now's your chance next week on BOA Audio, because we're going to dig into the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis and cover it from a plethora of different angles. After that, we're going to talk about esoterica in general, focusing really on ufology, youth and ufology, ufology on the internet, disclosure, and just tons and tons of other stuff. We really cover a wide variety of stuff in the last hour of the interview, so it's a jam-packed edition of BOA Audio next week with Mac Tony's Part 2 of 2 preview forthcoming at BOA. And on that note, we're going to call it a week. Thank you very much for listening, folks. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Benall, signing off.